All right, you can turn in your Bible to Second Peter, starting in chapter 3 today. As you are well aware by now, if you've been here or listening for a while, we like to go through verse by verse. And if you look at chapter 3, there's not a whole lot of verses here, but we'll be here for several weeks, um, specifically stopping at verse, from, at verse 7 today, because verse 8 and 9 carry a lot of weight to them theologically. And uh, so we're going to save those for next week and kind of tackle them together. I'm looking forward to that very much so looking forward to this morning too, though, as we dig into the first seven verses of chapter three. To think back on where we've come from so far, because if you guys have written a letter to someone, you know that if they only read the last paragraph, well, they're not getting the whole picture. So we want to remember where we've come from in Peter's second letter to us. And I just want to point back, and these are in your notes, how often Peter has referenced the Old Testament scriptures in his writings. So if you've got your notes, you can look at those. If you don't, you can grab a a sheet from the table back there. I'm just going to run through them quickly. In 2 Peter, he's talked about Noah, counting today as he will in the first seven verses, two different times. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. He talked about heaven before creation with the fall of Satan and the the third of the angels that went with him. And then he also talked about Balaam from the Old Testament. He quoted Proverbs 26.11 when he, he mentioned how false teachers are like a dog returning to their vomit. He referred to the Old Testament prophets in 2 Peter 1.21 saying that their writings were produced not of their own will, but they were carried along uh, by the Spirit and spoke God's words. And then he called Christians in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 16, to be holy as the Lord is holy. And he was quoting Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 in the process. So when Peter says here at the beginning that he's stirring up our memory... He's doing that, once again, for a purpose. Just like Jason was stirring the coffee and the creamer together, it's to to kind of awaken us, as we'll see here. And it shouldn't come as any surprise, then, that Peter is talking about creation today. And he's talking about the flood in the first seven verses. Now, I think when he references those things, he's expecting Christians who are reading this letter to understand their biblical history, to understand what God had done in history, to know the scriptures available to them and have a grasp of it. So there's two big things here. The end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 were written to remind believers of. Two big things. Number one, scripture, scriptures are not the idea of men, but of God. The Bible that we read is God's word, not men's. Men wrote it, God inspired it, and carried them along to write it. Number two, people are going to try to twist those scriptures to please themselves, to serve themselves. Now in chapter three, Peter starts by saying that if false teachers can't make you disbelieve scripture's origin, right, that it came from God, or its authority that it came from God, then maybe they can get you to doubt its content and its promises. And so that's the big question that's asked as you'll see. Let's read verses 1 through 7 and then have another quick word of prayer. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the old of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Lord, I'd venture to guess that myself and my friends here and listening this morning need Peter's stirring in our own minds today. We were fed a lot of stuff through media and through our culture, stuff that confuses, that leads astray, that just downright denies the truth of your existence and authority. And so we need to be stirred up by way of reminder this morning. Do that work. I'm insufficient too. So you do that work in our hearts and minds today by your spirit, for your glory. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So right off the bat, chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Beloved is a term of endearment. This is the second letter that he's writing to Christians and churches in and around the Rome area. And then he makes his purpose in writing to them clear. Look at, look at verse one. He says, to stir up their minds to remember the truths of the prophet's words and the truths of Jesus' words as were recorded and passed down by the apostles. So truth in their culture, this is why Peter was writing this, truth in their culture was being attacked, was being twisted. This is not unlike our culture. Truth was being attacked and twisted by people calling themselves Christians, even by people serving and leading churches. So the phrase, stir up, means literally to rouse someone from their sleep, to wake them up. Now there's a variety of ways that you can wake someone up from a cup of cold water to a gentle nudge to a soft, soothing voice or a punch in the arm. There's a lot of ways that you can wake somebody up. I'm not so sure Peter isn't waking us up with a bit of a punch to the arm here, okay? This is a a bit of a shock probably to what they were hearing and seeing in their day. Peter was sending a wake-up call to Christians. Guys, are you hearing it? I I hope that we are today. Because this was his purpose in writing these, these two letters, he says, to stir them up, to remind them of truth. Because why? Truth matters. Right, So what's contained in the Bible is true because its actual author is God, not men. That's how we know. It, it, it both claims to be the word of God and has proven through the centuries and ages to be the word of God, to endure. So Peter's readers and us today, we need to be awakened to this, to be reminded of this truth because, guys, false gospels are still being preached. Paul addresses this. Peter talks about it. Other New Testament authors say, if you hear any other gospel but the one I'm preaching you now, it's false. Don't listen to it. This is what Peter is saying to you and me even still. 
false gospels are still around. I said this last week. If you give an unregenerate, unbelieving person the option to choose between just being selfish and unashamed or denying themselves day by day, they're not going to choose to deny themselves. They're going to choose self-gratification. They're going to choose selfishness every time. They won't call it that, but that's what they choose. That's what teachers in Peter's day were proposing, and that's still what false teachers propose today. They say, just believe enough, and you too can have a Rolls Royce like me. Just believe, have enough faith, and you can have your jet. Just believe it. Believe for healing. Believe for your breakthrough, they say. Now, a couple weeks ago, John David was here, and he preached, and he talked about how to identify false prophets. And he mentioned a documentary-slash-movie called American Gospel. Uh, Nikki and I watched it. We've got a copy of it. I highly commend this to you. It explains the true gospel and how many today are perverting it into a false gospel. It's good for, I would say, even kids 10 years old or so. Um, nothing in there that wouldn't be okay for them to see. I definitely commend it to you because they're, we're battling some of the same doctrinal battles that Peter was battling, as we'll see. There were influential people in Peter's day who, who taught that like the body was unimportant. This is, Kelsey is going to lose it here for a few minutes because I said that word funny. So if she snorts, that's what it is because I can't speak. There were influential pe- people, Kelsey, people in Peter's day. And they were saying things like, hey, your body is, God is a spirit And so it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so they used this idea to justify sexual immorality, drunkenness, orgies, all kinds of immoral behavior. And they said, well, you know, here's their slogan. And this is mentioned in scripture. Eat, drink, and be merry. I've heard this before. You may have heard another one before. I mentioned it last week. It's this. Hey, it's your body. Do what you want with it. It's yours. You're not going to hear false teachers talk about denying themselves. They're not going to talk about the need for repentance either. Second Peter 2.14, you can glance back there. Peter says that these people have hearts trained in greed. He says that they entice unsteady souls to follow after them, looking for the same kind of fulfillment in this life. Peter's making very clear, though, in verse 2 of chapter 3, that Christians should remember and believe the words of Jesus, of the prophets. And those words stand in stark contrast to what the false teachers were saying and are saying even still. Look at verse 3 with me. Peter gives the why here for remembering the truth, remembering where truth comes from, because scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their sinful desires, their own sinful desires. So Peter's already taught us about the second coming of Christ. Look back at chapter 1, verse 16. He said, We don't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that's where he talked about uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he's saying what Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration was just a preview of his physical glorified body. 
It, the veil was pulled back for a few moments there, if you will, for Peter, James, and John. And Christ in all his glory, glory that was coming from he himself, not reflected glory like it does from Moses in the Old Testament, but glory that comes from within Christ was just a preview of what it's going to be like in the last day when he returns. But these guys, these are scoffers, and they are going to scoff at this. Peter is saying, look, guys, he's going to return in bodily form. Your body does matter. Your physical flesh is important in that sense. It does matter what you do with it. This is why Paul went into such detail in some of Romans where he talks about what you do with your physical body. Don't use them. Don't use the members of your body for sinful, lustful desires. Give them to God, he says. John, in Second John verse 7, warns us of this kind of person. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So, pretty big deal for somebody to say Jesus isn't coming back in the flesh, John says, no, those people are deceivers and antichrists. That's opposite of what Jesus actually is teaching. So the physical resurrection of Christ, as well as the second coming of Christ, are both anchors that ground a Christian's faith. These are important events that are being attacked here by this false teaching that Peter is dealing with. He's contending for truth hard here because people were saying false about it. So Christians, if you, if you look back at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter is saying that we have, Christians have this prophetic word about his second coming, made even more sure, and then he says that we should keep it in front of us like a lamp shining in the darkness. So when the darkness begins to creep in, and in many of your jobs, that, that's how it feels. When that begins to happen, or maybe it's a family issue or some kind of tension, and it feels like there's darkness, keep remembering and having your mind stirred up that Christ is coming again. He, he is coming back. This is the truth that Peter is getting at. Jesus is coming back. And this is the truth that the scoffers were scoffing about. They were mocking Christians, ridiculing those who say Jesus will return and so Peter wants to wake us up, maybe a little slap to the face this morning, to wake us up from any kind of sleepiness in our theology or in our lifestyle. These scoffers, Peter says, follow their own sinful desires. They do not account for things that they can't see with their own eyes or think of or understand fully with their minds. In verse 2, Peter mentions the predictions of the holy prophets. I think it's possible that he had a verse like Malachi 4, 1 and 2 in mind. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. This correlates with verse 7 in Second Peter 3. It goes on to say in verse 2, Malachi 4, that so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Have you ever seen a calf run through a field frolicking like that? Or a, a baby horse, is that called a foal? A colt, thank you. Um, 
it's like you can't help but laugh because they're like all legs at that point. And you don't normally see a gro- full-grown um, cow especially m- doing those kinds of movements. And to see a baby one, you, you kind of, it brings you joy almost to see that little animal have so much joy. And this is what Malachi is saying is going to be like when Christ returns. Those who know him are going to run and leap for joy just like that little baby cow. Then in verse two, Peter also talks about the commandment of the Lord and Savior. He's talking about Jesus there. And I think maybe he had in mind Matthew 24. Jesus is in that chapter. He's talking a lot about second coming. He says in Matthew 24 verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Just before this, in this whole discussion, he says, even I don't know the day. Only the Father. Verse 44 of Matthew 24, he says, Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Brothers and sisters, there are scoffers in our day that laugh at Christians who say this is an event that's coming in the future. Don't be fooled by the scoffers. Jesus is coming back. He will return for his bride. Look at verse 4. Peter explains, he says, what these scoffers are saying when they scoff. And he says, why they're ridiculing people who believe such a thing. Verse 4, he says, they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. So what's their reason for scoffing, for making fun, for ridiculing people who say that Jesus is coming back? Well, one of the things is they say, God's not really there. Perhaps they say God doesn't exist at all. Because if God was there, something would have changed throughout the course of history. But nothing has. The seasons come and the seasons go. The world just keeps going and going. The the old phrase is time marches on. This is what they said. This is their evidence for the fact that Jesus isn't coming back. They hadn't seen it with their own eyes. And so they scoffed. We have created a really important long word for what they believed uniform uniformitarianism it basically just means history has gone and rolled and seasons come and seasons go and so based on history nothing new is coming here's the official definition it's the assumption that the same natural laws and processes that operate in our present day scientific observations have always operated in the universe in the past, and apply everywhere in the universe to the future. That's what uniformitarianism says. Sun comes up, sun goes down, day after day. Tides have risen, and the tides have fallen for centuries in perfect order. See? Evidence that nothing really changes, that God is not there. Any thought that the sky might actually be rolled up as a scroll and earth purged with fiery judgment by the returning Christ is just an unimaginable, silly notion to the scoffers. And so they poke fun at Christians who believe that Jesus is coming again. But Peter sees through this skepticism, these arguments, and he responds in several ways. These are important for us. Look at verse 5. Peter says, these False teachers, they deliberately overlook this fact. These scoffers deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago 
and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now notice that it's not just the words of the apostles or the words of Jesus that these scoffers ignore and choose to forget. Peter says they actually forget the words of God at the very beginning as well, at creation. There are plenty of people today, I would say even the majority of people today, who deliberately overlook, who intentionally ignore the truth that God is the creator of all. Our government school system teaches this theory. But God, the Bible says what God said is important because he said, let there be, and there was. That's it. That's all it took. Out of nothing, God created everything. Guys, we are made in the image of God, but he is the only being who has the ability to create something out of nothing. You can't do that. I can't do that. Only God can do that. And he did it, and that's how this world began. Peter says, by his word, the earth was formed. God created water, and then he created the dry land to come up out of that water and separate the water. How did he do this? By his word. Now, when Peter uses the word heavens here, he means the place where God dwells. He's not talking about the atmosphere, the blue sky outside, the rain clouds. He's talking about the place where God dwells. The heavens existed long ago, longer than the earth itself. God is eternal. But then... God exercised his power, and what did he do? He created. God is creator. So something, this is Peter's first rebuttal to the argument or to the question, where's the, the, the sign of the promise, where's the promise, the fact that nothing, they're saying nothing has changed. Here's Peter's rebuttal. He says, actually, something big did change. God created everything that you see. He created the world. God intervened in creation. And then in verse 6, he goes to the next thing. He points here another way in which things have not always stayed the same. What does he bring up? He brings up the flood. Second time now, he's talked about Noah and the flood. He says, by means of these, he's talking about the water that God created. By means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Deluged means to inundate or engulf or to literally to flood. He flooded with the flood, with the water. So Peter's saying, look, not only are things not the same as they always were because God intervened in creation, but since creation, God intervened with the flood. Because of the wickedness, the vast wickedness on earth, God spared eight souls and no more to start over. So Peter is saying here, very no uncertain terms, he's saying, look, God can and will and has altered the course of human history with judgment. Not only in creation, but he's intervened in the flood with judgment. He did it in the past with water, and he's getting ready in the next verse, verse 7, to say, in the future it's going to be with fire. Look at verse 7. But by the same word, same word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This, I would argue, is probably the biggest reason why scoffers scoff, why they exist, and it's because judgment looms. Because judgment. This is why we don't like to look at our bank account statement when we think we might be getting close to overdrawing, because we don't really want to know the truth. It's the reason why we don't step on the scale to check our weight 
when we start getting a little heavier because we don't really want to know what it says. We don't want to think about the end and the return of Christ because then we might have to be accountable for the way we live. And this is why people scoff. Judgment and truth loom over us and we would rather ignore it than deal with it. As much as people want to deny the truth, as much as they want to replace the truth or ignore the truth, truth is what it is. And Peter says worldwide judgment is coming when Jesus comes. So in response to the scoffers, this is what, let's just recap, this is what Peter reminds them of, three things. He reminds them of God's authorship in creation. He reminds them of God's judgment in the worldwide flood. And he reminds them of the coming judgment of the ungodly with fire. Those are three pretty monumental events in world history that God has intervened in. Now, I would be remiss if I failed to mention another way. Peter doesn't mention it just here yet. But another way in which God intervened in human history, and it's, of course, the incarnation of Christ. 1 John 4.14 The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John three sixteen is a verse you'll know, and it'll sound familiar, but I want as we, as I read it, for you not just to quote it in your head along with me, though most of you can do that, I want you to think, are you one of those whosoever believes? Do you believe? Listen as I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are you one of those whosoever believes? Christ has come in the form of a servant to be the savior of whosoever believes. Do you believe? Or have you found yourself in the seat of a scoffer? Not really believing that Christ will return or that judgment is coming. Because if you look around, nothing much has changed. Well, Boy, in the years following COVID, I don't know that anyone can claim that. Our world has changed significantly in many ways. God has affected history. And in the sending of his son Jesus, he's made a way for you to be saved and offers both eternal life and a purpose-filled life now and forever. Everyone who believes, whosoever believes. So the question again is, do you? Do you believe? I want to read the rest of the conversation in John chapter 3 that Jesus has with Nicodemus after that famous verse 16 because it sheds a whole lot of light onto what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. John chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. I'll give you a moment to find it. Verse 17, John 3. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Okay, there's that word. Hope your ears perked up. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The scoffers ask, where's the promise? Here's the promise. It's Jesus. The promise is Jesus. It's found in Jesus. If Jesus is who he said he is, and he's done what he said he's done, brothers and sisters, friends, you can be confident, absolutely certain, that he will do what he says he's going to do. And he says he's coming again. We don't know that time. Anyone who claims to should be ashamed of themselves. We don't know that time. Jesus himself said he didn't know it. How could we? He's, but he's coming again. And so this is the, lot, the lamp that Peter says earlier in this book. This is the lamp that we put in, a dark, in the darkness. This, this truth that Jesus is coming again dispels doubt. It removes fear of what's to come. It gives us confidence and hope, not in the things that you and I do, Not in even how hard we believe, but in what Christ has already accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. And that's the lamp that shines in the darkness. That's the fulfillment of the promise. They say, where is it? There it is. It's in Christ. Do you believe is the question. Let's pray. It's good, Lord, that we evaluate that. We're told, work out our salvation with fear and and trembling. And so, Lord, those of us who know you are doing that this morning, and and there may be some trembling involved. Not, Not at the judgment that's to come on the sinners, an unbelieving world, but, Lord, just trembling on under the the thought of your greatness and majesty, how impactful your interventions in the world have been. And so, Lord, we need that same thing in each one of our lives. God, if you do not step in and fix what's broken, we will be under condemnation on that last day. It is a work of the Spirit in our hearts that you move, change, grant repentance, bring to faith, and then continually make us into a new creation in Christ. And so, Lord... Do that in our hearts today. For any who are listening, that they're, they're, they're the scoffer. They've sat in that seat. They've laughed. They've jeered. They've ignored intentionally because, Lord, it's just easier to not deal with those thoughts than to actually deal with them. And so I pray that you would force us to, to look you square in the face today and, and ask that question, do I believe? Lord, you grant that. And so I pray that you would move in power and save sinners today, this morning. And Lord, once you have, we then get that assurance, that seal by the Spirit, but also that shining lamp that's, that we set before us in the darkness day by day, reminding us, I can endure, I can have perseverance to the end, because I know He's coming for me. I know He's made a way for me. So whether I, I meet my end before he comes or I meet him in the air, Lord, we know that you have made a way. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And I pray that we would come to you. The promise, 
that those we're looking for in Peter's day is found in Christ. And I pray that we would find it in him as well this morning. In his name we pray. Amen.